Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Australia is a nation of pet owners. Um, we've, we're a population of, of 25 million people, and between us, we, owe, we own about 4.8 million dogs and about 3.9 million cats. And we spend an average of $1,500 a year to care for those dogs, about 1,000 for every cat, with much of that money going on what we feed them. And remember, it's not just um, putting food into their mouths, that we have to worry about, it's, it's what comes out of the other end as well. So why is it that we're prepared to spend thousands of dollars and pick up the poo of another species every day? To um, Why do we do that? Well, because we love our pets. According to um, research from um, 2016 uh, on pet ownership, Australians increasingly identify their pets as family members rather than just as, as companions. And we're spending more and more on our pets every year. But in today's society, when there's so many choices about what to eat, um, how much to eat, where our food comes from, and whether it's been humanely produced, working out what's best to feed our pets is, is a challenge. Especially if your cat's convinced you that it'll eat nothing but mackerel served on a blue dish on a window ledge while Beethoven's playing in the background. <laughs> so you might think what a privileged world, uh, first world question um, or problem this is when we're living through a global climate emergency. And when recent research has shown that the energy required to produce the food we feed our pet cats and dogs is responsible for releasing millions of tonnes of greenhouse gases. And also when, according to the Eat Lancet Commission report, much of the world's population is inadequately nourished and many environmental systems and processes are being pushed beyond safe boundaries by food production. It's becoming increasingly clear that we need a global transformation of our food system, and that raises big questions about what we feed our pets, or indeed, whether we should have pets at all. So today, our panel's going to attempt to consider these global and personal issues under the umbrella of One Welfare. One Welfare is a framework which recognises that there are connections between animal welfare, human well-being, and environmental sustainability. The One Welfare framework invites us to participate in cross-disciplinary um, collaboration to address these complex problems. And what we're aiming to do with this framework is to seek outcomes that benefit humans, animals, and the environment. So let's have a go at nutting out one of these wicked problems as we discuss issues around feeding companion animals with our expert panel. I'll come and join you. So um, we thought to kick off with, rather than try and tackle all three of the One Welfare issues at once, we might, we might hit off with environment. 
So um, I wondered if we might start to look at what we see as the main environmental implications of feeding the 7.7 .7 million dogs and cats that we own in Australia. And, and David, I thought, wondered whether you might kick off with that. Probably the major impact has to do with food production. Not the only impact, but potentially the major impact has to do with food production. Um, human food production, either for ourselves or for our companion animals, um, is probably the major contributor to environmental degradation on this planet. Um, now, the proportion of that that goes to pets, dogs and cats alone is massive. So as Fraser mentioned earlier, recent publications for the United States calculations have suggested that um, American dogs and cats eat 20% of the energy as American humans do. And the energy what type of energy makes a big difference because the production of, of animal-based foods is much more demanding on the environment and the production of plant-based foods. And unfortunately, we took a wrong turn way back about 40,000 years ago in history in domesticating carnivores rather than herbivores. And what that means is that a disproportionately large proportion of the energy that our pets eat comes from animal sourced products. So that is the, the short answer. The long answer is that to calculate exactly how much we can attribute directly um, to the feeding of our pets is a complicated thing to do. And I think Roger will have more to say about that. Yeah, Roger, perhaps you could help us understand what exactly goes into pet food and, and what measures the industry um, perhaps is already taking to tackle this problem. Well, thank you. It's, it's undoubted that all of us as living species, we are consuming food and that has an impact, its production has an impact on the environment. Um, I think a critical thing and something that makes me proud to be part of the pet food industry is we seek to um, complement rather than compete with the human food chain. So primarily the proteins, the carbohydrates that we use for pet food, are made up of byproducts of either animal production or cereal production um, and uses parts of the animal or parts of the grains which we choose not to eat. We could eat, they have good nutritional value. So in many ways the pet food industry is a, is a reprocessor or a scavenger that takes valuable proteins and carbohydrates and reformulates those into the pet foods you're familiar with. Um, but is those origins are primarily not parts of the animal or parts of grains which we would choose to eat. So um, do you think that uh, food waste isn't such a problem in the pet food industry as it is in, in the food production industry? That's an interesting question because it starts from, that's the origin of the ingredients for pet food. So we're using ingredients which we choose not to eat. Wastage then is as a matter of how that product is then distributed and consumed. And if, uh, if you're feeding, overfeeding a pet, 
such that he either overeats, which is not healthy, or leaves behind a lot of food, then that's food waste, as it is for us. If we get a dinner plate that is this big, and we really only needed one that was that big, then there's, there's a food wastage problem here. We're over-consuming. And that can happen, and does happen, I think, unfortunately, in a lot of pet dogs and cats who are treated very well, uh, but become overweight. I think there's a lot of synergies with human health mm. and behaviours. Thank you, Roger. Um, Michelle, I, I understand with your work as a zoo nutritionist, you're looking out for novel ingredients that might help reduce the environmental impact of, of the food that's um, been fed to, to animals. How do you go about figuring out what are good substitutes um, and the health implications that that might have? Well, it is very tricky because I am, I'm dealing with um, lions and tigers and capybara instead of, of dogs and cats. But uh, I, I rely really heavily on the research that's been done in the pet food industry and the livestock industry to design those diets. And, uh, and at Taronga, because our, our vision at Taronga is to, have, to secure a shared future for people and wildlife. So obviously it's something that is, is part of every decision that we make. And, uh, and we have uh, sustainability and, and looking at the environmental impact is, is, is a big part of that. So I'm always looking for local product, uh, products. I'm looking for agricultural byproducts that we can use in our diets. But I'm also looking to the pet food industry and what's being used there. Uh, it's just that when I'm feeding the animals at the zoo, I, I'm, I recognize that if I'm feeding an elephant, I'm basing a lot of the, the, um, the diet formulation on what I know about horses. <coughs> And so I'm always aware when I'm using these products that I'm kind of using it, it, it off-label. So I'm using it for species that they weren't intended for. So I'm always uh, aware of what kind of nutrition-related um, problems that we may have because we're feeding species that these diets weren't intended for. And, and they may have species-specific uh, nutrient requirements that are, that are different. And, and, and that's what a lot of my research is, is trying to find out what those differences are and feed them for the specific animals that we have. Um, but we are always looking for new ingredients. And just because there is a possible risk doesn't mean that I, I, I'm, I'm not willing to balance and try to find one of those win-win diets that they talk about in that Lancet report, like to have something that is actually a, a benefit to the animal and doesn't have a, um, that mitigates some of our environmental impact at the zoo. Because it does, animal food is the second um, largest contributor to our carbon footprint at Taronga. So with, um, we're spending $1.7 million a year on animal food, and that obviously has a big impact. So it's something that we're, it's very complex, as David was saying, it's very, very difficult to determine what that impact is. Uh, and carbon footprint is just a small picture of that, but, um, but it's something that's continuously factored in, something that we, we revisit again and again and again with all the diets. So in terms of the welfare implications of, of how the animal products have been obtained for, um, for food that we're feeding to pets, um, let, I'll just throw the question out. Should we be more concerned about feeding food that contains meat from, say, kangaroos than uh, meat that's, con that's produced from intensively farmed chickens or, or grass-fed cattle? What, what, what do we think about the humane production and the treatment of the animals that are actually going into this food? 
I think it's very important and I think there's increasing interest by pet owners who are recognising that they love animals. On the one hand, they want to look after their companion. On the other hand, they want to make sure the food they feed doesn't have a huge animal welfare footprint. I think this is something that has people that are growing awareness about. You, you don't want to help one animal and by doing so harm others in the process. Um, the difficulty is there's a lack of transparency in a lot of the production chains, so people really don't have a way of going to a pet food, say a commercial pet food, and, and, and reading a label and looking at an animal welfare footprint. There's not a, a sort of a quality assurance scheme as there are for um, some products that are made for human consumption. And I think that's an area where uh, pet food manufacturers can really take a leadership role, and maybe Roger has something to say about that, but I think there's going to be increasing demand from consumers to have animal welfare friendly food products for their companion animals. Roger, did you want to respond to I, that? I think that's a very interesting concept. And uh, if you think about where the pet food industry draws its ingredients, it's from the same chicken farms and same wheat production and same beef production that we uh, ourselves are eating. So it's the same, same production systems. But being able to look at it from a perspective of an animal welfare perspective, I think there's already some, uh, some products and brands which are positioning themselves as uh, close to you know, thinking about animal welfare and using free-range eggs or um, free-range chickens and free-range eggs, etc., in their formulations. So taking the same cues that we do for human health uh, or human choices uh, and applying those to pet foods as well. Yeah, I think there's a few startups as well that are um, marketing ideas like lab-based meat for companion animals and plant-based complete diets for companion animals. Whether or not that's possible, I'm not going to debate here because I don't know enough about it, but um, certainly the demand from some of their potential consumers is, is based on a desire to make sure that they feed animal welfare friendly products to companion animals. So if, if feeding meat is, is the problem, if, we, if that's the key problem, and, and David, you touched on this at the beginning, um, should we be trying to change the diets of our pets or should we be keeping carnivores as, as pets at all? Um, uh, Andrea, I just wondered if you wanted to talk about maybe what you think the health implications might be um, if we are to try and deal with these, this problem of, of the impact of animal products in, in pet food and dealing with it by trying to actually manipulate that diet. Yeah, I think... Um even before we think about that as, as well, one of the other changes that's happened, I think, as companion animals have become much more considered part of our families rather than just a pet, is that people are also thinking a lot more about what they're feeding their pets and thinking more about, well, actually, if that food wasn't fit for human consumption, do we want to feed that to our pets as well? So I think there's a lot of aspects of that coming into people's consideration um, in, in what they should feed their pets. Um, I think when we begin to think about the animal welfare impacts of what we're feeding our, our pets, the welfare impacts on our pet rather than on the, the production animal, 
we've got to remember to think about that in quite a holistic way in that nutrition is much more than just um, about feeding the right nutrients to our animals. Nutrition is quite a major component of an animal's overall welfare. The behavioural um, effects of how it obtains and ingests that food is, is really important as well. And we're really good at thinking about that in other species, so particularly in farm species and, and in horses. We're always thinking about the behavioural impacts of how we feed and, and what we feed. And I think we're not so good at thinking um, about that in companion animals as, as well. So, so behaviour is quite a big component of that, of how we feed our animals as, as well as, as health. Um, in terms of the other sort of health implications, I guess as um, one of the other panelists alluded to earlier, one of the biggest um, growing welfare concerns in, in pet animals is actually obesity and obesity-related diseases. So we're feeding them too much um, of the wrong foods on, on the whole. Um, and that's really quite a major um, global welfare problem for, for pet animals. And the kind of um, obesity-related diseases that we think about are things like um, diabetes mellitus, for example, is really common in cats um, and, and in dogs as well, but in cats particularly related to obesity osteoarthritis and reduced mobility and as our pets are living um, much longer lives that's becoming an increasing issue in, in older animals as well so there's quite a lot of aspects there um, that we need to consider Thanks Andrea um, and do you see that there are um, ethical issues around manipulating diets for, um, for our pets if we're trying to solve this problem I really do, I think that we have to to make sure that if we're going to keep an animal, um, I mean, companion animals are captive animals and they're a zoo animal in a way. Um, we control their diet completely. We have to provide it for them. And so we need to make sure that we're meeting their welfare needs. And I was actually a conversation that I had with Michelle a couple of years ago where I had this epiphany that maybe we should be taking a lead from zoos and thinking about the need um, to provide enrichment in their um, diets it's uh, the diet is part of their environmental enrichment um, there are other ethical issues um, there's people who are vegan who want to pee, uh, feed their pets some of which are obligate carnivores they want to feed them a vegan diet and I don't think that's appropriate I understand the tragic trade-off that I guess vegans would have to make because on the one hand keeping a carnivore they've got to keep an animal that sort of almost cancels out their they're good doing, if you like, by being vegan. Um, and so there's this, I guess, movement to create a vegan pet food. Um, but I think we need to make sure that in doing so, we, we remember it's about meeting the animal's needs. We, we have to consider that. And if we have obligate carnivores, I think it's very problematic. I think we need to also think that um, just shifting from having carnivores to herbivores can have some pretty unintended negative welfare consequences. As a companion animal vet, I see a lot of really badly looked after rabbits and guinea pigs um, and reptiles because people don't understand the husbandry and they don't understand how to handle or feed those animals. So I disagree with Gregory Oaken's recommendation that we should shift from carnivores to herbivores. So I think we'll have a whole lot of very bad welfare situations that we'll have to deal with. 
Um, David and Michelle, you might both want to comment on this, but um, Andrea talked about how um, it's important to look at not just nutrition but but behaviour when when we're thinking about the welfare of animals and how we feed them. Um, how important is is behaviour and how how do we how can we help to ensure that we're actually meeting the behavioural needs of animals in the way that we feed them? Well, I'll take it from the zoo standpoint, I guess, is that um, we're always thinking about <coughs> there's the diet and then the pre presentation of the diet is going to be um, just as important as the diet itself. So I can design something and if the animal doesn't eat it, then it's of no use to that animal regardless and we end up with a lot of waste. And, um, and with, with animals, what we tend to find is that they like to have a challenge. So with, if, with my pets at home and I have two cats, so I'm also a pet owner. Um, you know, you were feeding them a, quite a small amount in a day in order to get all of their nutritional needs into them. And so adding some uh, challenge to that can Im improve their behavior for the rest of the day, improve their kind of their well-being. And with zoo animals, we find that if they are, if we give them some sort of challenge, then they're more likely to, to eat the diet that's healthy for them. So if we give cucumber in a bowl, then, you know, the animals are probably just going to look at it and, and walk away but if we put cucumber up on a pole and they have to cross a bridge and and climb upside down and hang on something and then it's a challenge and when they get to it then they're more likely to eat it whether or not they just think oh god that was a lot of work i guess i'll just <laughs> i guess it was worth something um but there's they're they're more likely to eat a healthy diet and so it, the presentation of it it's always something that we talk about with the keepers is how it's presented when it's presented the frequency of it um you know those are all really really important it, and it helps us to make sure that that animal is going to is, is going to eat the diet that we're, we've prepared for them. So I, I would agree with that, that just to take it more from, from a pet and wildlife perspective that um, it, I study a lot of animals in the wild in their natural habitats and what I see um, universally is that a major part of the activities that animals in their natural environments undertake involve feeding food and obtaining the food. Uh, we've changed that entirely in a domestic um, animal context where um, we restrict feeding to a very short period in the day. We need to restrict feeding to a very short period in the day or else we have issues with overconsumption, which I think is probably related partially at least to, to boredom and to, to not having the enrichment and the activity Activities that animals are actually adapted to to um, to participate in. Um, another unfortunate side effect of that is that they seek their entertainment elsewhere in hunting um, wildlife, for example. Very often, not for nutritional purposes, but just for the fact, for the behavioural, for the behavioural purpose of killing things. And I think these are really important considerations in pet ownership. Uh, the solutions again are complex. Um, I'm not sure what. I would suggest, but we do need to think very carefully about how we deal with these things. Roger, you wanted to add something? Yes. We've got to remember, we, we all evolved in the same way. We, we spent most of our time finding food. We now don't have to, and the dog and cat are in the same situation now in a home. Um, so enrichment during feeding and, and, and diet consumption is a really important uh, opportunity to enrich the life of the pet as well as manage consumption. So, you know, our, our traditional way of thinking is you have a 
a place uh, where the food bowl will be and that's where the dog or cat gets fed. Well, there's a lot of thinking now to say, well, place the food in a different place every day. Mm. Dog or cat has to go find the food. He'll, 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 he or she will uh, enjoy the hunt much more by, by having to search, search the house for, uh, or, or some other hidey spot for, for, for the food. In, also, uh, uh, some form of toy uh, ball thing with, with little holes in it where you put, put the dry kibbly food inside and the dog or cat has to play with that and chase it before one by one those kibbles fall out over the next hour, then that's much more uh, uh, beneficial from a behaviour and experience than 20 or 30 grams of kibbles in, in, in a bowl which he eats in two mouthfuls. So there's lots of simple ways of, of doing that enrichment and, 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 and solving several problems. But I'd also like to come, if I, if I may, I think there's, a, there's evolving tools to help us think about that. Yes, it's convenient to have one, one regular feeding spot, it's easy to keep clean, blah, 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 but think about, think about the enrichment for the, for the pet. If I may come to the, com, uh, the question around synthetic meats or non-live animal sourced meats, this has a, an intriguing opportunity for both animal and human health and into the future. Uh, we are all concerned about animal husbandry and, uh, and the, the, the production process of, uh, and uh, processing of animals. Uh, and the technology to, to grow uh, the cells of flesh, so you create beef or chicken or whatever cells from potentially plant-based origins um, in a fermenter of some sort, <coughs> chemistry, uh, it could have a lot, of, a lot of benefits and opportunities in the future, and, and the pet food industry would, would be looking at that very closely as how, opportunities. How far away do we think we are? Well, I think that science is evolving. Uh, you, you see and read the same reports that, that I, I see, um, but it's becoming more and more feasible. Um, there's lots of regulatory barriers before that enters the human food chain in a big way. Um, provided the safety um, aspects, and that really talks about the safety of the origin of the material and the technologies involved in the transformation of that substrate to protein, um, provided those, uh, those safety um, uh, checks can be verified, then I think that becomes animal food ready very quickly. So uh, on that safety theme, um, I, there seem to be quite a regular um, number of scares over manufactured pet food. So from time to time, there'll be something that comes up, whether it be melamine contamination um, or, or issues with irradiated food. Um, so there's, the, when those come up, we hear about um, sick pets, we hear about, about pets dying. Um, what do we think that um, we have adequate regulation of the pet food industry in Australia, or in terms of the the products that that, are, that we're feeding and labelling and uh, those sorts of requirements? Andrea, what's your view? Um, I think that's a, a really good point, and um, has been highlighted quite recently with um, some other um, pet food rela related issues as, as well. And I think we definitely don't have good regulation. Is is the first um, question, and 
I guess it's also very challenging because the pet food industry is, is a global industry and a lot of the pet foods that we have here in Australia will be imported from other countries as well. Um, and so we don't always have good um, control over what's happening in, in other countries and their production, but also in the transport. One of the big um, problems that occurred several years ago was associated with a cat food from Canada that was a perfectly good commercial cat food, but something happened um, as it um, came into Australia um, during um, quarantine customs. It was irradiated and something happened to the food during irradiation, which then caused these cats to develop um, demyelinating neurological disease. So there's a lot of challenges, first with the type of problems that we see and we the, the number of animals that it takes to um, develop these severe problems before we recognise the association between that problem and a particular pet food. Um, still when that happens we don't always know what exactly in the pet food has caused the problem um, and so and, and then we have the, the broader issue of the, the regulation um, of the, the whole pet food industry and also the labelling of um, the, the labelling of pet foods as, as well and there were some recent studies that showed that um, what was in pet foods on the supermarket shelf wasn't always what was on the label. So we definitely need um, much better ways of addressing that and it's probably something that Roger will know a lot more about as well. I would, I would support that. I think it's very important because as Andrea said, we already, there is potential currently for those sorts of problems to arise, but we're now speaking about changing the practices of, of pet feeding and it's really critically important that as we develop our practices that they are properly regulated in the interests of the pets and also the owners of those pets. So and before we start changing... Sorry, can I just have yeah. make one? And also, I think it's, it's t also relevant as we're thinking about other ways of feeding our pets to make their feeding more environmentally sustainable, that we have to be aware that we might be um, entering waters that are quite uncharted in terms of what we're, we're feeding them, and sometimes there can be really unintended consequences. So another example of that that's occurred recently is with feeding grain-free um, diets to pets. These became quite popular um, and then um, an association began to be seen between dogs that were being fed pet these grain-free diets and a particular type of heart disease, a type of dilated cardiomyopathy. Um, and I, I'm not aware that again, the, the, exactly what's happening um, there has been established, but it's something to do with the um, with things like lentils and other legumes that were being used in the diets in replacement of grain and who would have ever thought that that could cause a problem. So I think we have to be really aware that as we might be trying to improve environmentally sustainability and inadvertently cause other health issues in our pets as well. They're really vulnerable because 
unlike humans, our companion animals often eat the same thing morning and, and night. So there can be something that's reasonably minor, like vitamin B deficiency. But if you feed that diet every single day, that animal is going to get very, very sick. Um, so I think they're much more vulnerable than us in terms of food toxicities. And also as someone who euthanized one of those cats with the, um, that particular food toxicity, that was devastating because it was a premium brand from a particular clinic that had promoted this food as a, a really um, beneficial diet. So fed by someone who was committed to the animal's welfare, who thought they were doing the best possible thing and then ended up killing their animal inadvertently in the process. It was absolutely devastating for that person. Absolutely, and these are really tragic, tragic cases. And uh, firstly, the pet food industry welcomes the regulation. In fact, we've been calling for regulation for more than 10 years uh, and have developed this Australian standard to reflect the best practices globally from Europe and the US, plus our Australian experiences. And indeed, the Australian experiences have taught the world a lot. So the, the particular case of irradiation of cat food was really proven on the case in Australia, plus some documented cases of, uh, of cats in, uh, 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 disease-free cats in, 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 in special labs and on large animals fed, uh, fed irradiated diets. So the Australian experience actually proved that science. And so irradiation of cat food is now not permitted anywhere in the world because of that experience. And because of that experience, unfortunate experience, we learn something. And from that, the pet food industry and the Australian Veterinary Association, using Sydney University's uh, vet schools facilities, runs the PetSmart monitoring system of vet veterinarians reporting potential food-based illnesses to give us an early warning alert on any, any issues. And that has proven very successful in two previous case, two, two uh, recent cases, um, but not always. But uh, certainly it, it does pick up and give us early warning on those. And to your point about the sensitivity of pets to the food they're being fed, this is a huge responsibility for the pet food industry. I like to think of it as infant formula for life. We are complete nutrition at every stage of life, and that may be the only diet or series of diets that that pet ever consumes. So the responsibility on the industry is more than anything in the, pet f in the human food industry other than infant formula. Because we all choose to eat lots of different foods. We don't eat the same food every day, morning, midday and evening. I hope we don't. Um, I think we all enjoy a very wide range of foods and we have the luxury of eating um, many, many, many different types of food every day and every week. Our repertoire may be here, but we range across that. In pet food, we have to plan for somebody, a pet owner, well-caring, loving pet owner buying this food because they believe that is the best thing for their, for their pet and feeding it for the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. So the responsibility for us weighs on us very heavily. Mm. And, and we're all pet lovers, after all. So the, the issue of these, what we have to learn from each of these issues is something, how does science progress? How does nutritional science and safety science get progressed? And we put the right regulations and standards in place. 
So if I thought my dog was sick as a result of, of eating um, a pet food or a, or a treat, um, what, what's the process for that? What should I do as an owner? Who should I tell? And is there, is there some kind of mandatory recall system as there is for um, human food or, or other products? So you would need to see your veterinarian and the best thing to do is actually bring in the food, bring everything that you've fed your dog or cat and in including the labels, anything that we have um, as well as unopened um, from the same batch is ideal because those foods can be tested if need be. At the moment, there's no mechanism that I'm aware of for direct um, consumer report, but if you go through the veterinarian, the veterinarian can lodge a report through the PETFAST system, through the ABA, the manufacturers will be alerted those samples can be tested and um, we've had food tested in, in cases and um, we've, we've been able to say, yes, the food was the issue. Of course, animals do eat food every day. They don't always eat the food that you provide them. Sometimes they eat non-food objects. So sometimes the reason for the illness is, is nothing to do with the diet. Um, and people might want to blame the diet for, for various reasons. So um, it's important that a veterinarian takes a detailed history as well and does a physical examination and ancillary test just to try to work out exactly what is going on. Is this food related or not? Because even answering that question can be a little tricky. So, okay, so we've done all of that and then we've identified that, that there is a problem. What, what happens next? Okay, so usually then the manufacturers get involved and it, as far as I'm aware, it's the manufacturer's discretion whether a product is recalled. But again, Roger would be in a position to confirm that. Yes, and, and certainly the, the earliest the manufacturer is alerted to the issue because there may be other if there indeed there is a problem with the product, there may well be other cases being reported. So PetFast through your vet or direct to manufacturer means the data is being collected and as soon as there's a number of cases, then it's clear there's an issue. So, um, but there is, there is, as you say, there is no mandatory recall and uh, that's, that's a major gap in Australia. Yeah. So and we, we want to see that happen. Okay, so do we, we see a role for government in this? I, I understand there was a, a Senate inquiry um, last year that, that reported and made a recommendation that we should have mandatory standards in Australia. Um, where has is, where is that got up to? If I, if I may, um, the... The uh, Senate made their Senate uh, panel made their report. Uh, the Department of Agriculture has been uh, chairing a uh, review committee and has appointed a number of um, uh, consultants to, to, who to address nutritional requirements and safety requirements, including recalls. Uh, those reports are due over the coming month. So sometime ne next month, we would expect to see those recommendations from those consultants coming out, and hopefully they will uh, lead to the right establishment of the right authority having control and uh, the establishment of a mechanism for standards development and review. If I might, Ida, I think sorry. <laughs> I think it's important to differentiate the problems that we see in the pet foods, though, that we that we've we're talking about. Because when we talk about melamine, that was a contaminant, a contaminated ingredient that was it was it was basically a, a malicious intent in that there was a, a an ingredient manufacturer that was trying to improve the level or or the apparent level of protein in their diet. So when we test for protein, we test for nitrogen. We don't test for protein. We just use a calculation to determine the protein. 
protein, and they added melamine, which is high in nitrogen, but it's not protein. So they added that to a wheat gluten ingredient that was being used in pet foods, and it was devastating because as um, they're, they're obviously the pet food companies are, are they do want the best health for our animals be, for because it's good business as well, um, but obviously they care about animal health, and that was uh, that was a contaminated ingredient. And when we talk about um, other other um, other problems with pets that are getting diets that are not formulated properly, those those can be uh, ingredient mistakes. So it can be just a, 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 a decimal place out of order when they add a vitamin mineral supplement, and so you end up with a vitamin toxicity. Um, or you can have, uh, and again, that those are honest mistakes. The pet food companies were not intending to do anything um, not anything wrong in there. And then when when we talk about the the new ingredients like peas and lentils and sweet potatoes, no one would assume that those would cause any problems. We've been eating those things for, for, for years. But the research that's been done in pet food in the past, that was done on the byproducts that Roger was talking about. That was using corns and, 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 uh, and cheaper kind of food, human waste, human food waste materials. And so that's what all the research was done. So we know a lot about how pets will react to those ingredients, but we don't know how they'll react to these newer ingredients. And so whenever we add new ingredients, we need to think about the possibility that it might have a nutrient reaction that we've never seen before. They're cats and dogs, they're not human. Um, just like I look at the zoo animals and I think, well, that's a, that's a lion, not a, not a domestic cat. We need to be thinking about that there could potentially be something that we have no idea how it's going to react inside that animal. And so whenever we look at synthetic meats or if we're looking at adding other, other um, protein sources, for example, I think insect protein is the thing of the future. And, um, and we obviously have to consider these things. We still don't know how they react in pets. So we do have to be very, um, very savvy consumers. And it, it, there, there has been market research that's shown that Australian pet owners are very savvy. They do look, they look for information. They want information on pet foods. They're asking their vets, they're asking pet stores, they're looking on the internet and they're trying to find the information. It's just hard to get the information because it's not on the label necessarily. And, um, and, and most of the information that we get is from advertising for the most part. And, uh, and even though we know a lot about the nutrient requirements of dogs and cats, there are these new ingredients that are cropping up that we really can't anticipate what that's, how that's gonna react. So it's a couple of different issues there um, when it comes to the recalls that are happening. Thanks, Michelle. Yes, Andrea. A, another point. We've, um, it's come up in discussion about how there's such this huge responsibility on pet food manufacturers because um, individual animals are likely to be eating a particular diet every day throughout their life. And I agree that that's an enormous responsibility. And to get something, you know, so right and to be able to ensure that no mistakes are going to occur. And as we've talked about, that's not how we eat. And so I think we also need to ask the question, well, why are we feeding our animals the exact same food every day for its whole life? And should we really be doing that? 
Um, as far as I'm aware, all of the animals that were severely impacted by all of the um, adverse events that we've um, talked about were animals that were solely eating that particular diet. And so we can actually significantly reduce the um, risk of animals becoming sick from issues in commercial foods like that by simply feeding a, a, a little range of diets and not just sticking rigidly to one diet. So, I mean, that's putting a responsibility um, back onto the owners, which again means that we've got to be thoughtful about what it is that um, the, that range, <coughs> excuse me, of, of food that we are feeding and, and have enough information on the label to help us make those decisions, which seems to be a bit of a problem in the, in the current environment. Um, I wondered if we might bring this back to um, thinking about um, the, this human welfare, animal welfare nexus and, and, and just look at that question of why it is that we're prepared to put this effort in. What, what, why, why are we prepared to spend all, all this money on feeding our pets? What, what is in it for us? What's the benefit that we're getting? Andrea? I, um, I feed a lot of animals, so I feel well, well qualified to answer that question. I guess just as a um, gregarious and hopefully caring species that we um, get feel good about ourselves for looking after um, another um, individual that um, we feel that we can benefit its life and improve its, its welfare. Um, so I guess that, um, that is, is one aspect. And, and then there's the aspect of what we get out of having those animals um, and I think you know there has been a lot of work that's been that, that's looked at the health and well-being benefits for people of, of having companion animals um, so I think there's a lot of evidence out there for um, how we, we benefit from that uh, association. So, uh, David, do you think that we're um, that those benefits are sufficient to um, to justify the environmental impacts that, that feeding our pets have? I think there's no simple answer to that. What we're looking at is a whole lot of trade-offs. So there are benefits um, to individuals, there are costs to the environment, there are benefits and costs to the companion animals. I think like a diet, we've got to take a balanced approach to this and say, well, you know, where can we cut, where can we change to evolve the whole system towards the best set of compromises, the win-win that the Eat Lancet report um, spoke of. So I would say, yes, it is an important part of human interactions um, to, to to, um, to have companion animals. I would support that, but we need to think carefully about which companion animals, how many companion animals, what size of companion animals, how we feed them, are we overfeeding them? Overfeeding is a lose-lose, nobody wins from that. If we're underfeeding them, there are real issues in terms of welfare. So I think we need a mature group conversation, pet food industry, veterinarians, members of the public to decide what is the best way for where we can benefit, the animals can benefit, and the impact on the environment is minimal. So that's a whole lot of things to think about at one point, at one time. Who, who, who should we trust to, to get our information as, as pet owners? Like who, should we be getting it from the pet food manufacturers? Should we be um, asking our vets? Who, who's the trusted agent here? I think there isn't one. 
and that's the problem. And I think it's very hard in this day and age to be a trusted agent. There's a crisis of trust in this world. No one's really trusting professions anymore. But the number one question that people ask me is, what should I feed my dog, cat, rabbit, or whatever? And I'm very mindful in my position as someone who has some influence on that, uh, to be careful how I answer that question. One of the issues that's driving people to um, feed perhaps uh, some inappropriate homemade diets is a, a, a mistrust of big pet food, if you like. And some of these recalls have contributed to that, reasonably so and unreasonably so in some cases. And so there's been almost a bit of a backlash and with that a bit of a concern about what a veterinarian saying about feeding their animals. And I think that it comes down to you have to think about the individual animal in every single case. I don't believe that there's a blanket recommendation that you can say that this animal has this formula you know, for their whole life. I think it depends very much on the animal, their lifestyle, their preferences. We have to think about their preferences. <laughs> That's what welfare is all about. I, if someone fed me peas every day, I'd, I'd die of misery. So, I, I, and in fact, I actually had a, a canine patient that the owner's um, beautiful uh, dog, the owners wanted to try to in introduce more veggies in his diet and they started putting peas on all his meals. Well, he came in and he'd gone off his food and we did this very expensive workup. And at the end I said, Maybe we couldn't find anything. And I said, let's just take the peas away. Started <laughs> eating straight away. So um, preference is really important as well. And enrichment too. I think we, I agree with Andrea, we need to be very careful about saying, well, you should be feeding you know, this food. And as vets, we have to be careful too. It's, um, not to say, well, I think you should feed this brand of food because there's a conflict of interest there and that can undermine trust in us and, and our recommendations. And so I think uh, something we have to consider as well. I think that's a really great point. Trust and confidence are things that we all need to work together on. And I think the conversation about responsible pet ownership and what does that mean in the modern age where we think about sustainability and we think about welfare along with nutrition and safety. So I think that is a really powerful conversation to continue to have and this, this is a great forum to kick that off. But you know that is something we need all to work on and I think that can help build that trust and confidence. Do you think the pet food industry needs to um, articulate that in a way that might increase public confidence? For example, actually, uh, I mean, are the measures at the moment to look at um, environmental sustainability and actually enunciate those principles as, as an industry? Yeah, I, I think we can do. We can clearly do more. Our website has has that story there, um, and I think. But you know, again, are we trusted? Uh, and I'd like to thank you for raising the environmental story again, because you know, there's been a lot written. The the time to eat your dog, it's a dog over its lifetime time is the same as a, a Land Cruiser. Actually, is is actually a flawed calculation because that's a simplistic calculation that based on the use of animal ingredients um, into pet food in the same way that it goes into human food. Well, chickens and beef steers are not raised for dogs and cats. They're raised for us. And we're prepared to pay $5 a kilo or $10 a kilo for that produce that's coming from that steer or that chicken. 
what goes into pet food is one-tenth or one-twentieth the value. So the, the, the accepted methodology for environmental allocation is called economic allocation. So the purpose of raising chickens or beef steers is for proteins for, for humans. The byproducts get an economic allocation of that footprint. And that's CSIRO and others around the world have, have aligned on that approach for allocation of footprint. We all, make, we all incur some footprint, but it's not the same. We don't, as I say, we don't raise the beef steer or the chicken to make pet food. We use the byproducts of it being raised for human consumption. And the price we pay per kilo for the offal meats is typically one-tenth to one-twentieth the price of the rest of the carcass that goes to human consumption. So that, that when you apply that to the to the sustainability issue, it, it changes the picture. It doesn't take it away. There is, a neck, there is a footprint of dog and cat feeding, but it's much less than a couple of those reports may have uh, meant it to yeah. or indicated it was. Yes, Michelle? I was just thinking it was interesting the way you said, Roger, that it's, it's foods that humans choose not to eat, which is an important point because as, you know, with climate change and as, as we're, we're, we're more um, understanding that we need to be able to feed 9.8 billion people and by 2050 or whatever the, um, the, uh, the numbers are now, uh, we need to start looking at these byproducts as fit for human consumption. Absolutely. You know? and, and that means shifting the way that we eat as well um, in, order to, um, in order to use these, these because it, we have demonized them in the pet food industry in a way. You know, we've got a lot of, we've got some, um, you, you go on a website and it says all the foods to avoid in pet food and, and uh, all the ingredients to avoid like oh well poultry meal I mean that's still that's still a, a nutritionally valid product for a pet food or human food you know it's just that we don't we choose not to eat it but um, but when you demonize those products and you force pet food companies to use more prime ingredients then we are moving into that realm of making them more having a greater environmental impact and so we really need to think about what we're switching what we're causing pet food companies to do because they're very competitive and they will weigh, they will ride those waves of the fads. Like, don't be surprised if you see goji berries and wheatgrass <laughs> shots for your dogs because because they have to. Because in the in the end, they need to be the one that um, that is set apart. You know, they need to the, to prove that they're better. And if we looked at all of them as though they were nutritionally complete and every food was nutritionally complete, they have to have something that sets them apart. And I and it reminds me of a story. I had a friend of mine who worked for a pet food company uh, and she was the, her um, assignment was to make a Christmas dinner for dogs and so the, the manufacturer wanted a turkey dinner with all the, all the fixings for dogs in a can and she formulated that diet in seconds. It took no time at all because it's really easy to formulate a pet food from, from normal ingredients. The, the time she spent all her, what she spent all of her time on was trying to figure out how to get one cranberry to rise to the top of the can so that when you open the can, you saw a cranberry. <laughs> that's what she spent all of her time on. So that's what was going to set that food apart, you know, so that the, the, they could be marketed 
celebrate it as Christmas dinner for your dog, just like you know, just like you're having. And um, and so it's it is it is important to to sort of understand that it is a very competitive business, and they are designing things that also follow our fads, our diet fads too. So you know, when we say grain free, that's n- not necessarily it could be a marketing ploy, but every pet food company needs to sort of grab part of that market because there is such a push towards towards these different um, kind of fads that are coming out. So a lot of what we, when we're attracted to foods, it's because of we're thinking about it from a human perspective, and of course mm. that's not that's not helpful for the animal. And I, I know I'm, I buy plastic bones for my dog, and they're you know beef and wine flavoured, which is <laughs> sounds great. Why? <laughs> yeah, I, I haven't seen my dog drink wine for a while. Um, <laughs> for <but> a while. <laughs> how how much is that influencing us? And should we be you know how how should we be changing our behaviour about what we're feeding our animals? How should we be thinking about it more from the animal's perspective? Have you got some thoughts on that? I guess that um, this also comes back a little bit to who do owners trust for advice because um, in where they don't feel they can trust um, anywhere for advice, I think the natural thing to think about is what they might want to eat and, and how that's the easiest way for an owner to relate to what they might feed, feed their pet. And so I do think that an important part of this whole thing is about education, but also how we do that in this environment where there is a lack of trust. And I guess that as veterinarians, we would hope that um, pet owners would want to come to us for advice about how to feed their pet. Um, And is the vet the right place to go? Um, I think there are several issues there and I think that um, this ranges from um, a lack of education ourselves, particularly as there's more and more material that needs to be covered in undergraduate training. Um, Nutrition isn't something that um, vets are really well trained in. Um, I think there's the big issue that there's a huge conflict of interest with a lot of vets in what they're recommending because the majority of veterinary clinics are are selling pet food and more than just selling a range of pet food, they often have an arrangement with a particular company that that's the particular pet food that they are going to to sell. And I think that um, there's this unfortunate scenario that has occurred where um, the pet food industry and the veterinary profession has become so embedded into each other that whilst initially that may seem like a good thing, um, it's actually become a bad thing because there has become so much conflict of interest within the veterinary profession that um, it's impossible for veterinarians to be giving truly independent advice. And so if you can't trust your veterinarian on advising you how to feed your pet, who can you trust? I think those issues are all really tied in together. I'm not sure it's impossible, but I think we need to... I mean, there is no area in life that is free of conflicts of interest. And I think that it's really important to declare it 
and manage it and say, okay, well, yes, I work in this clinic which sells this food. But in this case, these are the considerations I think we, well, this is what we need to factor into creating a diet for your dog or cat or these are the things that we need to think about and I recommend this or that but every vet that you ask is going to give you a different view so I think if if you put it that way um, because it's, it's impossible to avoid conflicts of interest and I guess the thing is that I'm not a nutrition expert and I do rely on companies to provide a decent diet and do the research, as I do um, rely on human food manufacturers to be giving me a reasonable, you know, doing the research and the hard work for me. Um, I don't expect my doctor to know everything that goes into every product that I'm going to ingest myself, and nor I think is it a realistic expectation to ask a vet to know exactly how this food was manufactured or exactly which ingredients. So it does come down to acknowledging the limitations of our knowledge recognizing there's a potential conflict of interest, sharing that with the client, and then managing it together. I think that's the best that everyone can do. Thanks, Anne. Um, I just wanted to go back to that one welfare framework that we started with and, and you know, for you all to have the chance to just um, maybe share with the audience how you think we can best strike a balance between the environmental, the, the human and the animal welfare impacts when we're choosing what to feed our pets? Well, I think I might go back a little bit and answer it a little bit differently in that we think about our pets based on, like you were saying, you know, you've got the steak and wine bone. And, um, and I think I, I've always been really intrigued by David's work because he looks at the, and I'll tell, I won't tell you, tell them what you do, but, um, <laughs> but I think it's really important to understand that everybody is designed to eat their natural diet. So humans are designed to eat their natural diet. I don't know what that natural diet is because it's been gone for a very long time. But when we look at our pets, they're also designed to the, for their uh, microbial system, to their, you know, their dentist their enzymes, everything's designed to eat a natural diet. And we have to consider them for what they're designed to eat. And, um, and that doesn't mean we don't look for new ingredients and maybe we move away from meat and we, we look at things like insect protein. And we need to consider though, when we're looking at these new ingredients, what that is gonna mean when it's scaled up to a pet food industry kind of size. You know, if the pet food industry is, some of these big companies might be 50 or 60% of the whole market and that might, I don't know if that's right, Roger, but I think some, some of the big companies are, they probably take care of about 50 or 60% of the market. And that's a large percentage of of the pet food market and that means that if we change an ingredient over it's going to have a big impact so if we're talking about synthetic meats and we're going to try and scale that up to a pet food size portion then we need to make sure that that actually once it's scaled up has the environmental impact that we're looking for that it's actually less than than um what we're looking, you know, what we're trying to replace. And I don't think we can answer that question for everything yet. And so that's something that I think takes a lot of forethought and um, to, to determine what that's going to be. So I think there's, there's definitely room to look for new ingredients and try and, and make those win-win diets and find something that has a lower environmental impact that's not going to be, have negative safety, um, you know, negative problems with food safety or pet health or, um, or human 
health as well. Um, but I think that it, we, we do have to consider all of these things about what would happen if it was scaled up to, a, to the pet food size portion that it really is and, and make sure that we are designing them in terms of what those animals are, have evolved to eat as well and not put our own, um, our own beliefs onto it, you know, so that we're, so that we're, we actually consider that a, a carnivore, even though it's defined as a meat eater and we think of that as, um, as a, you know, muscle meat kind of thing is that that animal in the wild is actually eating whole prey items. And that means they're eating a lot of hides and a lot of and fur and gastrointestinal contents and bone and all of that is contributing to the nutrition of that animal. So we don't have any fiber requirements for our for dogs and cats. There's no fiber requirement set for that and yet we know that a large portion of their diet is um, things that they're not digestible. It's indigestible things, and also moisture. You know, we don't we don't talk about um, moisture when we're feeding animals as well. And so to have all of those components in a feed with ingredients that are um, environmentally um, sound is is definitely possible. Uh, but we we do need to think of it in that it's a very big industry, and so it's it's going. We need to scale things up. You know, and that's I guess where I where I think that it's it's definitely possible, uh, and we need to think outside the box and really look for things that can solve these issues, um, because I think it's out there for sure, um, and we and somebody's going to have to take the leap to to be using um, different types of of ingredients, um, uh, but it is it, we do it with caution. Thanks, yeah. Michelle. David. <laughs> I think there are short-term and long-term considerations here. I think in the short term, we need to think about how we handle our current pet population, and that is the sorts of things that Michelle's spoken about, and I'm sure others will speak about. What we also need to think about is the extent to which the, the size and the nature of that pet population is necessary. I think we all need to be prepared to make compromises in the interests of, 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 of one welfare, um, and we, I think it would be misplaced to take as a given that we can continue to, um, to hold pet populations in the way that we are at the moment. I think we need to think about, as I said earlier on, the number of pets we have, the nature of those pets, the size of the pets that we have, and also the species, really important, the species of pets that we keep. To what extent is it necessary that we keep carnivorous animals? Um, in the, the much longer term, I think we might even think about, um, Michelle raised the point, which I agree with, that it's really important to consider the adaptations, the evolutionary adaptations of animals in, in, in deciding how you're going to husband them. Um, but even those, I'm not convinced that we should take those as a given because a lot of the adaptations that we look at in companion animals are not ones that come from their pre-domestication pre past, but they've also been added to during domestication. So a good example of that is dogs. Um, dogs have evolved to become more omnivorous because of their long and the nature of their association with humans during um, domestication. So they have um, uh, biochemical pathways that that wolves don't have for processing starches, for example, things that came about in large abundance only at the transition of human societies to agriculture. Um, so dogs, like humans, have evolved in our created environments. And the thing I sometimes wonder to myself is whether 
we can't use that process of artificial selection to reach a balance between the characteristics that we like in carnivorous companion animals and, and those adapted biochemical and behavioral pathways that are associated with diet. There are many examples in the wild where animals in the relatively short term have evolved um, from being carnivorous through to omnivorous and even ultimately herbivorous, like the giant panda. And the biochemical pathways are known that have enabled the giant panda to transition from firstly a, a carnivorous, then omnivorous, and now an exclusively extremely specialized herbivorous diet. And I wonder whether we shouldn't be thinking outside of the box more broadly about um, focusing domestication on changing the nature, the adapted nature of the pets that we, that we keep. Thanks, David. Well, I have a conflict of interest. Um, I'm a veterinarian. I draw an income from treating companion animals, but uh, and I, I live with an obligate carnivore and an omnivore, three herbivores, and um, <laughs> one poor suffering human. But I, I would say that uh, companion animals are doing a job that I don't think humans are doing for each other at all very well. Um, and if you look at the lives of older people, if they didn't have these animals, some of these people would have nothing. They would have no one visiting them. Um, people who I see who've been through trauma, who've been through divorce, um, living on their own, a companion animal is, is their family. The multi-species household is the norm, I believe. Again, conflict of interest. Um, and I think we need to do a lot to preserve that. And maybe one way um, to, to consider that is think about if changing their diets isn't necessarily the best thing to do, we're the ones with choice, we're the ones with power here, do we need to change ours? Thanks, Anne. <laughs> Great, great, great thinking. And I, I do believe, you know, the one welfare um, concept applies to us as well. And the benefits of pet ownership, companionship, um, were both physical and mental well-being for humans, for us, is such a, a huge gift that dogs and cats and other uh, pets give us. So we, we must think about you know, how do we work together in this, because we are in this together, uh, and we can learn a lot from each other. So I really think uh, that the concept of what's appropriate pet, you know, if you're, if you're in the country or in the, in the big suburban backyard, you can have the larger dog more easily. But more of us are living more closely in in smaller apartments and uh, and with less less uh, rest, um, opportunities for exercise, and therefore a smaller dog or cat or other animal may be more appropriate. So helping people understand that welfare impact of the choice they make, because we do have the choices, right? What choices we make are really important, and how do we give more people more information to, to make better choices. I think that is going to be a very big impact on one welfare. Thanks, <clears throat> Andrea. Um, yeah, I just want to pick up on a couple of those points as, as well and, and also relate back to when we were talking earlier about should we be keeping different species and, and Anne rightly pointed out the um, concerns about the welfare of pets that owners are not so well educated to um, keep. So that may be things like rabbits, guinea pigs, birds, for example. Um, but I, I think also we do have that issue with cats and, and, and dogs as well. And again, um, as um, 
more and more people within city areas are, are, are getting pets, we do need to question, are they getting the most appropriate um, pets? And whilst cats and dogs are the, the most popular um, pets, there's also a lot of relinquishment of cats and dogs, um, usually when they are not adapting to their environment as we <coughs> may want them to, and that's often related to them not being um, cared for appropriately in terms of not being provided with the appropriate environment and appropriate husbandry. And so I think we do need to think really carefully about um, the type of species that we're keeping as pets, not just for the environmental impacts that um, David mentioned, but also for the, the welfare of those individual animals as well. Um, and what happens to those animals if they don't fit in with our lifestyle or the environment that they want to be kept in. There's a huge sort of waste in the cat and dog pet um, industry as well. Thank you. Well, those were fantastic points um, for us to think about. So it's time for us to wrap up, um, and I've got a few um, thank yous to give. Um, I think first, though, I'll just um, see if I can put in a nutshell some of the things that we've um, covered here. I think this, I mean, it's been a fantastic discussion. I'm really grateful to, to everybody, the, the speakers and the audience, for the contribu contribution that you've made. Um, a few take-home messages. I think we, it's clear that we need better regulation in this space. We need to know what it is that we're buying and we need to know that it, it's safe, but we also need to know what some of the animal welfare and environmental impacts are. Um, We've got to be really savvy customers when it comes to making our own purchases around what we feed our pets um, and making sure that it's good for them. We've got to make it more interesting for them. That's a big take-home message for me, I think. Um, I've thought about this from the, the point of view of animal welfare for a long time, but I don't think I'm thinking about it from the point of view of my dog. Um, and we've got to be prepared to make compromises, um, and that might mean having fewer pets, it might mean having smaller pets, but I think it's probably uh, our consumption that we need to be thinking about more than anything else. So um, I think if we go away and think about those things, we're, we're going to be starting to address this challenge. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.